So we are in Isaiah chapter 29. If you need a Bible, please raise your hands. Isaiah chapter 29. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, every bit of it. Lord, we need it. So the refining effect of your word. Lord, I, I think about that, uh, that metaphor you so often of a, of a silversmith refining his silver in the fire until he's able to see his own face in the silver. And so we, we Lord, sometimes grimace with pain because of the fire of being refined. But Lord, we do want to look like you, be a reflection of you, Lord. And Lord, we know for that to happen, we need your word, all of it. I just pray in Jesus' name, you take us through your word this evening. Amen. Okay, verse 1 of Isaiah 29. Woe to Ariel. Ariel. To Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let feasts come around, yet I will distress Ariel. And so, uh, that word Ariel is used here for... Anyone ever know a guy named Ariel? Yeah? Or a girl? You know a girl? Okay, yeah. It's a, a name. Uh, a Jewish name. It means uh, Lion of God. I like that name. Lion of God. It's another name here for Jerusalem. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel. The city where David dwelt. Add year to year, let feasts come around, yet I will distress Ariel. And so it is believed that the citizens of Jerusalem, this was a name they gave to themselves, the Lion of God. As we go through the next few verses, it appears here that the prophet Isaiah, of course, it's the Holy Spirit speaking through Isaiah, it appears that he's being sarcastic here. That the city sort of boasted, we're sort of the lion of God. And it says, you add year to year, let feasts come around, yet I will distress Ariel. And so the, the idea is, is they had digressed from a relationship with Lord with the Lord into a religion where it just became, you know, the feast came around. Remember, there was three major feasts each year that every Jewish male over the age of 21 was required to be in Jerusalem um, each year. And, uh, and it says, add year to year, you know, let feasts come around. So there's this, there's this feeling there of, of, um, just religion. And, and in the beginning of the verse, it says, the city where David dwelt. So the idea, apparently the idea here is, well, David, King David, dwelt in this city. And remember the people in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus who came from the north. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Can any good thing come outside of Jerusalem was the thought. There's just a, an, an arrogance uh, so oftentimes, we get this feeling also in the church that, man, if Jesus came back, man, he would be coming right here. He'd get Logan Airport, take a taxi right to Calvary Chapel. In the city. I mean, churches have this, have this view over time that there's just something special about them. But so often as it hits here, when, when that pride manifests itself, it, it's because religion has just set in, and that appears to be what is happening here. It says, yet I will distress Ariel. So, um, you know, David established the line of the Messiah. It, 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 it was 
it is and still to this day is a city of enormous importance. But the Bible says that God always honors his word above his name. And if his word is being disobeyed, as we'll read later on in these chapters, he's a God of justice and and he must judge. And he says, I'm going to distress Ariel. Verse 2, there shall be heaviness and sorrow. It shall be to me as Ariel. So apparently what he's saying there is, I'm going to be the lion and I'm going to eat up this city in judgment. I will encamp against you all around. And we know this happened, right? I put up, we're not putting it up to be today, but remember there, the, the Israel, there was a civil war, the northern kingdom to the north, and um, they fell into apostasy. They rejected God and his word and rejected all his prophets that came to warn them to turn back. But uh, eventually, Uh, They were wiped out by a a foreign army, the Assyrians, and the people in Jerusalem watched all that. They thought there was something special about themselves that, oh, judgment will never come our way. And one of the saddest things to see uh, in the Bible and the saddest things to uh, see, Lord, really anywhere in the history of the church is when there are judgments start approaching little by little, and the church is so arrogant and full of itself that it's, it thinks, oh, that's just for them. You know, those gigantic tsunamis, those, you know, radioactive plants, you know, whatever, blowing up, uh, you know, t- the, the terrorism, whatever, that's because that's them. And, 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 and so, you know, the that's what was going on in Jerusalem. And eventually, the, those Assyrians, which wiped out the north, Isaiah prophesies, I will own camp against you all around. And this eventually did happen. So the thing that they said would never happen to them did happen. I will lay siege against you with a mound. I will lay siege works against you. And so that's a reference to the warfare uh, at the time where a city's walls were so thick that people knew they couldn't get through or penetrate them, so they, they, they would just encamp around the city and basically starve the people to death is, is, is what they did. And so uh, that is what eventually did happen. You shall be brought down. You shall speak out of the ground. Your speech shall be low out of the dust. Your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust. In other words, they will get so low that their sort of boasting words, we're the city that David dwelt in, would come eventually as a whisper. Verse 5, moreover, the multitude of your foes, of your enemies, shall be like the fine dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones, like chafe that passes away. Yes, it shall be an instant, subtle, in an instant, suddenly. So now, all of a sudden here, there's a prophecy of what, is going to happen to these enemies that are, are uh, you know, all around them that are going to be chastening the city, disciplining the city. Then in verse 5, we read all of a sudden, but instantly they will all pass away, all your enemies. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Give Mike Don. credit. Here. Okay, Mike, credit to you. Bible says give credit where credit's due. Thank you, Mike. Uh, and so that would happen. The Assyrians would come to Jerusalem. They would surround it like a caged bird. But then the angel of the Lord came and slew 185,000 Assyrians overnight. But by that time, Jerusalem had been humbled and had turned to the Lord. That is sometimes uh, what it takes 
Verse 6, you will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fi- um, fire. It's speaking now of the enemies. It's, it's, it's shifted. It's one of the difficult things about Isaiah. It shifts subjects from verse to verse. Now it's talking about, it says that in the first four verses, it's talking about the, how the enemies would bring Jerusalem to utter humility. But then now in, in verses 5 uh, through uh, uh, Five and six, it's talking about what the Lord's going to do to the enemies. But then in verse seven, the multitude of all the nations who fight against Ariel, even all who fight against her and her distress and, and distresser, shall be as a dream of a night vision. It shall even be as when a hungry man dreams. And look, he eats, but he awakes, and his soul is empty. So the, sort of the poetry there, the metaphor there, is that the Assyrians are going to surround Jerusalem. They're going to see this wonderful prize, Jerusalem, and and just like a hungry man in a dream, oh, wow, that strawberry rhubarb pie. Anyone ever want to make me one of those? Please, please do. But uh, anyway, you shouldn't use the pulpit for that kind of thing. But anyway... uh, it, it, it's, it's the same thing. The Assyrians looked at Jerusalem. It was just in their grasp, but as, the, as a hungry man dreams and look, and he eats, but he awakes and his soul is empty, that is what is going to happen with Assyria. Verse 9, pause and wonder, blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. So he shifts back in verses 9 and 10 there uh, to talk about, uh, to, to talk there about what had happened to the city prior to the rep- repentance. It says they are drunk but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. In other words, the Lord had, had humbled them so much. The Lord, it says, has poured on you this spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. Meaning that the part of the judgment here, had, it had gotten to the point where and this is a very, very, very scary place for any nation to get to when the prophets have ceased to speak. That's what it's talking about here. Seer at the end of verse 10 is just another word for prophet or preacher. When the prophets cease to speak, when the seers cease to, you know, declare the truth, a country is in great, great danger. And there does reach a time in a country where, the, in a nation or a people, that the Lord gives them over to their, their own hardness of heart. And it says that it had, had actually reached that point here. You know, I think about America, and, and I am very encouraged because in, in America, you, you do have many people still declaring the word of God. But I think about the, in the mid-1800s, a couple of quotes attributed to uh, Alexander de Tocqueville. You may have heard of him. If you took politics in college, you had to have heard of him. But there's two. Uh, he's a Frenchman who came over to study what it was about America that made her great. Some of you may have heard these. These are attributed to him. There's some dispute there, apparently. But... Um, but th- this quote of de, Toc- de Tocqueville says, I sought for the greatness and genius of America in her commodious harbors and her ample rivers, and it was not there. In other words, the greatness and genius of America was not in her harbors and rivers. In the natural, a country, you know, in the natural man will may look at America, and it's true, harbors and great rivers are always a tremendous asset. But de Tocqueville said, well, that's not it. I, I've looked at that, and that's not it. And then he says, and then I saw her fertile fields and boundless prairies, and it was not there. In other words, her greatness was not just because her soil was uh, fertile, 
And then I saw her rich mines, in other words, ore, gold, copper, silver, steel, that type. Steel is actually from iron. But, and then I, in her rich mines and her vast world uh, of commerce, and it was not there. Not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits aflame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. It's a wonderful quote. Now, some think it was not that, but it was this quote that was actually mentioned by de Tocqueville. This actually predates him. In all probability, he probably said both of them at different times. This is de Tocqueville, this, this, um, this Frenchman who came over to figure out what it was about this country that was just prospering tremendously. He says, I went at your bidding and I passed along, I passed along their thoroughfares of trade. I ascended their mountains and went down their valleys. I visited their manufactories, their commercial markets and emporiums of trade. I entered their judicial courts and legislative halls, but I sought everywhere in vain for the secret of their success until I entered the church. It was there as I listened to the soul equalizing and the soul elevating principles of the gospel of Christ as they fell from Sabbath to Sabbath upon the masses of the people that I learned why America was great and free and why France was a slave. Wow, that's so powerful. It really is. As they fell from Sabbath to Sabbath upon the masses of the people. What a great picture. God says a nation can get to the point where he shuts the mouths of the prophets and covers the heads of the seers. We need to pray for our country. Verse 11, the whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men delivered to one who is literate, saying, read this. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. So this is the same, along the same line of thinking. He's saying, even though people are literate, they're saying, well, no, that's closed. So it's almost like sticking their heads in the sand type of thing. Verse 12, then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, who can't read, saying, read this, please. And he says, I'm not literate. In other words, the country becomes illiterate in the word of God, in the word of God. You know, I am just shocked. I was talking this morning a lot about you know, what's going, what we find in, in the housing developments as we go in there from week to week, but not only there, just other places as well. You, you literally speak to teenagers. And I've spoken here before to, to at least one person who is actually in their 30s, but on a regular basis, speaking to teenagers, people in their 20s, they have never been told that sex outside of marriage is wrong. Never. And, and they're not lying. That's amazing. <laughs> they're growing up illiterate. And, and what an opportunity to, to bring in the word of God and make them literate. I just really loved uh, Christina. She, uh, I think she's, um, she was just here. She's out with uh, Rick and uh, her fiancé in, in premarital now with Joel and Shoba. But just she, she said when she first heard Aaron Wentz, she had never knew anything about the Bible. I, I, as I heard her correctly last Saturday, she said she'd never even heard about Jesus or really who he was. And so it's a, a reminder to us to keep on keeping on bringing the people the word of God. We're surrounded by a mission field. Verse 13, therefore the Lord said, 
Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men, therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. And the understanding of the prudent men shall be hidden. You know, as I read that verse, you know, automatically what I think of uh, in that verse is Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews require a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And, and, and the Bible says that God makes the wisdom of the world foolishness. It does indeed say that. And so it says that in verse 13, these people, they draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. And, and you know, we talked this morning about how Jesus says in Matthew 12, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And, and that is true. You know, eventually that gunk, that ugliness in our heart is just going to pour out. But that does need to be qualified because we can fake it, right? <laughs> you know, we can fake what comes out of our, our mouth at least and we can actually get before God and we can sing songs to Him and we can say prayers to Him and, 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 and we can even talk to people about Him but our heart is far, far away. And it really is a heart religion. It's all about the heart and God knows the heart. God knows it. Verse 15, Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord. And this is what we do. We try to compartmentalize some area of sin in our life and pretend it's not really there and God really doesn't uh, uh, notice it or at least God is just looking at the rest of 95% of my life um, but He doesn't notice this 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 thing, you know, in this 5% compartment, this thing that I keep secret, but, you know, it's a cancer, and God is the great physician, and physicians don't ignore cancer because soon cancer takes over everything else in the body. I mean, if you're here this evening and you've tr just tried to, to keep a part of your life and just hide it away from everything, even... You try to convince yourself that you don't even know about it. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows? Verse 15. It's just amazing. Uh, we, we were praying a, a, few, a few weeks back that, um, Lord... Uh, on Wednesday morning at the prayer time, we were just praying. Um, I, I do a teaching and prayer there. and We were just praying about how the Bible says over and over that sin will hinder prayer. And we actually prayed, Lord, expose sin. There's sin in, in, in our church. Expose it. Fa the Lord's so faithful to do that. He's so gracious to do that. And, and, and you know, we've all been a place of sin you know, before and he actually was faithful in the, in the next couple of weeks to do it and, and praise the Lord because there's grace. There's a wonderful message of grace for us, you know, with this type of thing. And, 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 but we can't hide it from the Lord. 
We can't say, as it says in verse 16, who really sees this? Who knows? The lo- it will be exposed. Sure, verse 16, surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? That's exactly what is going on in the world today. In, the, in our universities and high schools across the country, they're saying that very thing. He did not make me. That's what evolutionary theory is all about. God didn't make us. And it's gotten to the point that that, that you know, passes as, as, as science. And, you know... Instead of seeing the absolute need, actually, not only the absolute need, the obvious that an intelligent designer created all things, what is being taught today is that absolute, total, blind, random, purposeless chance, having no understanding at all, none, brought all things into being. That is absurd. I just read a, 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 I've I've heard this before, but I I just read about Carl Sagan, uh, a famous evolutionist. He actually petitioned the federal government for a grant to search for intelligent life into outer space. In case you don't already know this, in case you're sitting here today and and you've embraced evolution, um, evolutionists, the, the sort of the leading front of evolutionists have, to their own credit, come to the place where they do not understand how the inima, inanimate somehow sprung into being and became a living cell. To their credit, for decades, there was this goofy, stupid theory about lightning striking protein cells or something, all of a sudden life. That's all been rejected in the scientific community. Although it's still in some uh, textbooks, I understand, which is really crazy. But to their credit, they, 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 they just literally don't know. And, but what's so absurd is that they, so they actually think that one of their leading theories is that a, a, an alien from outer space planted life. And, and they say it with an absolute straight face. I forget what the name of the theory is. If you know it, shout it out. But, but you know, Carl Sagan was one of them. And he, so he petitioned the federal government for a grant to search for intelligent life. And, and he, he made it known how he was going to ha- find intelligent life. <laughs> Come on, don't, you're all like smirking at me, uh, you know. But, but, but it was by, he was going to find it these are like intelligent people, and our federal government apparently gives money to things like this. He was going to find intelligent life in outer space because there's got to be something out there because we can't, we couldn't have just came into being here. It had to come from uh, from outer space. Of course, begs the question: who created that life? But whatever, they don't want to talk about that. But he was going to find intelligent life in outer space by using this super sensitive instrument to pick up radio signals from distant space. It sounds uh, logical. When he received those radio signals, um, or when he received these signals, or he would identify these signals, how? By looking for order and patterns. Now, does anyone see the absurdity of that? How do order and patterns come into being? A creator. So he, he's searching for sort of the proof of, uh, of, of life somewhere else and refuses to admit that, it, uh, it, it, that there was a creator, that it came out as a result of order and design replaced by a creator. And, and he's trying to prove that by essentially admitting that there has to be a creator out there. I mean, it, it's just all very silly. And it's, it's actually, it's, superstitious, and it's extremely ignorant, but it is a fulfillment of what Isaiah is saying here in verse 16, for shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? 
Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Verse 17, is not yet a little while. So here he, Isaiah, maybe he, remember from time to time he jumps, you know, to, he, put on to, he puts on his lenses of, of a future time, a time where the Messiah would come to reign. I do believe that's what 17 verses 21 is going to address here. And again, he is speaking in these, in these prophecies, not only the people who are in disobedient, but there was always a remnant. And, he, and you'll notice this about the word of God and, this, and, and the prophecy in Isaiah. He always gives hope to that remnant, lest they just become completely smothered with discouragement at the prophecy. So from time to time, every other chapter or so, he just, you know, sort of comes through with this wonderful vision um, of the future. Verse 17, it is not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field be esteemed as the forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of the book. The eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble shall also increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among people shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. I believe this is talking about the second coming of Christ. It says in verse 20, for the terrible one is brought to nothing. I think that is an allusion to what is also described in the book of Revelation. And remember, uh, Friday nights, we've just begun a study through Revelation. Uh, it's a summer study. And in, in the Revelation of chapter 13, there's a description of the Antichrist. Verse 1 in chapter 13 says, Then I stood on the sand of the sea. I saw a beast rising up above the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his head a blasphemous name. And so it just uh, it, it goes on to talk about how this beast is going to be uh, worshipped. And it says in verse 5, he was given authority to continue uh, for 42 mouth, uh, months, um, having sort of authority in the world. Uh, and then it says in verse 12, and he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. This is apparently speaking of Satan here. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on earth by those signs which he has granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who has wounded who was wounded by the sword and lived. So the Antichrist, one of the things that's going to happen with the Antichrist, he's going to be wounded, appear to die. Maybe he will die, and he's going to be brought to life, and that is going to be a sort of a seductive uh, thing to bring people to believe in him, notwithstanding his wickedness. Jesus, when he comes back, slays the Antichrist. And it says in verse 20 of Isaiah 29, For the terrible one is brought to nothing, the scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off. There will be a great battle, the battle of Armageddon, in which all who watch for iniquity are cut off, who make a man an offender by a word and lay a snare for him who reproves the gate and turn aside the just by empty words. Verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now grow pale, but when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. Those who erred in sight will become to understanding and those who complain will learn teaching or doctrine. So there probably is a near-term fulfillment of this um, after Jerusalem 
uh, is humbled and restored after the Assyrians are put to death, but I believe may also be speaking of the beginning of the millennial reign. Verse uh, chapter 30. Chapter 30. Woe to the rebellious children. So then it'll just, remember, it'll just take, takes them right back. So a word of encouragement to the remnant, then it takes them right back, the city of Jerusalem, seeing the enemy armies wiping out all the other nations, but saying, oh, we're, we're the people of God. We have all the feasts of God. We have the law of God. We're cool with God. And, you know, we don't have anything to fear. It says, woe to the rebellious children who take counsel, but not of me, who devise plans, but not of my spirit. You know, I spoke to our leadership team a couple weeks back, and I told them that, you know, we're reaching a time where uh, the margin of error is getting so small to the point of, Man, it, it, if, if you're in any sort of sin in your life, it, you know, things that sh- people got away with or Christians got away with 40, 50 years ago, today they're just wiped out, you know, in, in many respects. In the area of sin, in the area of, you know, the comforts or denying ourselves, you know, how much are we... Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me. And, and, and what we got away with 30 years ago, sort of living off our comforts and getting comfortable in our life, we're no longer getting away with that anymore. But I also talked about this area of watchfulness. You know, there was a time where the margin for error in the area of, area of watchfulness was so much greater than it is today. And what do I mean by that? The Bible says that be not unaware of Satan's schemes. You need to be, Jesus says, before his return, he says, you need to be watchful and pray always. And what does watchful mean? Watchful means, you know, it, it, it just means just to be always focused on the Lord and listening to his voice. And just because you see a situation in front of you that you've seen before doesn't mean that you don't go into prayer, Lord, this time, how should I be handling it? I know I handled it this way a year ago, but this time, how do you want me handling it? There's a wonderful example of this with David. When he first became king, when Israel was united, the northern kingdom and the southern king, I mean, rather, the northern tribes came down and everyone sort of made him king. The first thing that happened was the Philistines came up. And what does he do? Well, the Philistines, the enemy is, is coming. So obviously, I should go out and, 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 and battle them. No, he's watchful. He, he seeks the Lord. Do you want me to go after the Philistines? It's a wonderful lesson in the importance of being watchful. Just because you see something that you've responded to in one way before doesn't mean you shouldn't be praying about it. So what happens? David wipes out the Philistines. Great victory. And within a few months, what happens again? Anyone remember? It was a while back. Who said that? Here they come again. The Philistines came right back. What did, he do? what did he do? Did he say, oh, well, I defeated him last time. The Lord told me last time, so I'm just going to go back and, and, you know, fight him again. No, it says he prayed. What? Why are you praying? You going to just let these people come in and wipe you out? He prayed. He was watchful. And what happened? The Lord gave him a completely different method of battle this time. And he wiped him out again. We need to be watchful. This says, woe to the rebellious children who take counsel, but not of me, who devise plans, but not of my spirit. We need to make sure when we're devising plans for our life that they're spirit-led. Now, we just don't adopt them because they're logical and this is how they do things in corporate America or this is how they do things in a college textbook or something like that. 
we got to do things, it's because it's the Spirit of God telling us. It says, that they may add sin to sin. You know, when we don't listen to the Lord, that is sin. The Bible says, wait on me. Wait upon me. I reveal my heart to you. Wait upon me. When we don't and we just run into whatever, uh, this says that is sin. It says that they may add sin to sin. Verse 2, who walk down to go down to Egypt and have not asked for my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame. And trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. So what's happening? So this, finally, you know, Assyria is wiping out all the nations around them. They say, ah, that's not going to happen to us. All of a sudden, they start getting so close. They start coming into the nation of Judah, wiping out the, the outlier cities, this type of thing. What did they do? They didn't go to the Lord. Who did they go to? You just read it. Egypt. They went down to Egypt. They didn't, it, it says, you didn't even ask me my advice. It says, verse 2, and they have not asked my advice, but they go strengthen themselves uh, in the strength of Pharaoh. They, they, they go down and they ask Pharaoh, and it, it says in, in here, verse 4, it says, for the princes were at Zoan and his ambassadors came to Hanes. They were all ashamed of a people who could not benefit them or be help or benefit, but a shame and also a reproach. And then it says down in verse 7, For the Egyptians shall help in vain and, uh, and to of no purpose. In fact, historians will tell you that though Egypt was paid, they actually gave Egypt a lot of money to help them with the Assyrians. But Egypt never responded. They did nothing. And in verse 6, it's almost comical. It's here, it's Isaiah or the Holy Spirit actually, um, actually feeling sorry for the beasts, the donkeys, the mules who went down with all the gold on their backs to carry it to Egypt. It says, the, the burden against the beasts of the south through a land of trouble and anguish from which came the lioness and lion, the viper and the firing uh, uh, serpent. They will carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people who shall not profit. It's amazing what happens when we invest so much time and money in things that are a complete waste of time and money. And it's because they're not the Lord's plans. They're not the Lord's plans. And the Lord is, but the Lord is so, so, it is so gracious to us. I remember, you know, when I first became a Christian, I got a call to be a pastor and to come up to Boston. I I was born up here, but moved away when I was nine. Lord called me back. I immediately started. Uh, I, I think I sent like a hundred resumes up here. Spent a lot of money, a lot of time, an enormous amount of stress trying to get a job up here in Boston. It was all a waste of time and money because the Lord was not in it. My timing was wrong. I had heard from the Lord the right thing, but my timing, I was not prepared to come up here. If I came up here uh, then, I was like, whatever, 21 years ago, I would have been just sifted like wheat by the enemy, by Satan. We waste a lot of time and money. Why? Because I wasn't listening to the Lord. And as a new believer, sometimes it's hard to sift out what's the Lord and what's our emotions. And so, uh, verse 8, it says, Now go write it before on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may be for time to come forever and ever that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. It's another way of saying, say to the prophets, do not speak. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. 
get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. We do read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, familiar verses. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. This is in the New Testament now. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. I grew up with these kind of teachers. I never heard about being... I, I grew up in church. Protestant churches. Not a single time do I have one recollection of a mention of hell, except when the pastor was saying it didn't exist growing up. These are mainline denominations. Never once did I hear the term born again. Never once did I, I remember hear about anything about a relationship with Jesus. N- nothing about a relationship with Jesus. Nothing. And that's a, it, it's because people you know, gathering around them, pastors and preachers, to tell them what their itching ears want them to hear, which is what? You guys have freedom to live according to, you know, however you feel like you want to live. The book of Judges, right? That was constantly repeated throughout the book of Judges. Everyone did what was right in his own mind, in his own, in his own eyes. And so that's what he's talking about here. Verse 12, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversion and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall uh, be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant and he shall break it like the breaking of the potter's vessel which is broken in pieces he shall not spare so there shall not be found among its fragments a shard to take fire from earth um, or to take water from the cistern. There was just a tremendous humbling to get Jerusalem to get off their high horse. Thank God, and in the sovereignty of God, they had a godly king, Hezekiah, who repented publicly. One of the best verses in in the Bible, verse 15. I know I say that about verses all the time, but really this one is. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Brother and sister, that's true for you today. Today. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. One of the most encouraging things is is to meet a brother or sister in Christ. And there's just a quiet trust about them. Just trust in the Lord and they're at rest. And I love this, in return, actually in the NIV it says in repentance and rest, same word for repentance. Repentance is a lifelong thing. We should be repenting every day. Of course, you know, we repent more and more but we sin less and less as we mature in the Lord but repentance doesn't stop. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not, and you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore, you shall flee. And remember what we uh, talked about in uh, the, the, the book of James. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And let me tell you, the people in Jerusalem were in a mighty big trial. All of a sudden they realized, wow, the Syrians have breached our borders. They're coming right toward us. That's a big trial. Because then, you know, they would ju- the Syrians were one of the cruelest armies that ever lived. They used to skin people alive, the Syrians. Verse 3 in Jet James 3 knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Patience. But let that patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect, complete, not lacking anything. And what do we say about that, that patience? You know, when we're in all kinds of trials, uh, 
the temptation is to what? Run. And that's exactly or, or, or that's exactly what Isaiah says and in verse 16. And you said, no, for we will flee, we'll run on horses. Therefore, you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you will be swift. One thousand shall uh, flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left as a pole on the top of a mountain as a banner on a hill. In other words, fleeing is just, you're just going to, you're just going to trash your life if you flee. There's going to be misery if you, if you flee. You know, the, being in the, because we live in a fallen world, being in the will of God is not an easy thing. It's a hard thing. But there's one thing that's harder. And what is that? Being outside of the will of God. That's right. And man, you flee. You're, you flee. You're, so you're no longer in, under God's protection. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. Verse 18, therefore the Lord will wait. This is a wonderful verse. That he may be gracious to you. What a picture of grace. And there's, this, this, there's this picture here of panic and unbelief and lack of trust. And what is the Lord doing? I'm just going to wait. Why? So I can just wipe them out? No. So I can be gracious to you. And therefore, he will, ex- he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Let patience do its perfect work in our lives. For the people shall dwell in the Zion at Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will be very gracious to you. At the sound of your cry, when he hears it, he will answer you. And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner anymore. In other words, the teachers will come back out uh, into the marketplace. But your eyes shall see your teachers, and you, your, the wonderful verse, verse 21, I put this up on the screens a couple weeks ago. Your ear shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. So that's just, verse 21 is just speaking to someone who's in the word of God. And we talked this morning um, uh, uh, again, and you know, in, in the book of James. But he who looks intently into the perfect law of liberty, another word for the word, phrase just meaning the word of God, he who looks intently into the word of God and continues in it and does not, and, and is not a forgetful here, but as a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And one of the blessings of looking intently into the Word of God on a daily basis is you begin to be tuned in with the voice of God. This is the way. Walk in it. Mike or Albert or Candace. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left, in other words, go to the right Tanner, Glenda, Stephanie, Ronya, go to the left. Jessica, Fetty, Don. This is one of the wonderful privileges of returning and resting, of quietness and confidence. Verse 22, you will also defile the covering of your images of silver. In other words, you're going to repent and you'll get rid of all those idols in your life and the ornaments of your molded images of gold. You will throw them away as an unclean thing. You will say to them, get a way. It's a wonderful thing that happens when we get to the point where we all of a sudden we see those idols in our life and they are just awful. You know, I just pray just what I pray for my own kids, particularly in their early teens. But, but still, you know, now I just, I pray that they would come to the place in their life 
where they recoil at evil. See, our natural man is attracted to evil. It's attracted to it. But when God opens our eyes, we recoil at it. Recoil, I mean, we like shrink back. We're sort of aghast. It's the same picture here that he's talking about. You will throw them away, verse 22, as an unclean thing. Now, anyone have the King James? What? I won't make you say it out loud. Unclean thing. I won't make you say it out loud either. King James says menstrual cloth. That's the word. That, that, that's the word. NIV. If you have the NIV, same thing. Menstrual cloth. You know, I shake my head. That trans- I love those translators. I'm, thank you f- I'm thankful for them. Why they decided to put unclean thing here, I don't know. The, 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 the Hebrew word means menstrual cloth. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a great picture. Oh, what a bummer that they, they, that what they did here. Just because, no, seriously, it's, it's just because this is what happens when the Lord does a work on our, our life. It's like a, you know, it, 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 it's, it's like a gross menstrual cloth. It's like, ah, oh, throw it away. What a great attitude to have towards sin. You know, what a great image. Isn't it crazy that what translators do? I'm sorry, I'm thankful for them, but come on. We need to, you know, we need to, to see that imagery. Verse 23, when then he will give the rain for your seed with which you sow the ground and bread of the increase of the earth, it will be fat and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will, will feed in large pastures. This, by the way, is not talking about the millennial rain. It's talking about seek you first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added Verse 24, likewise the oxen and the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder which has been winnowed with the shovel and the fan. There will be on every high mountain and on every high hill rivers and streams of waters. In the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall, fall, moreover the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in in the day that the Lord binds up the bruise of his people and heals the stroke of their wound. Great prosperity when people... Seek the kingdom of God. The key is, and the problem is, is when you start after God prospers you, you start feeding off of the goods, the created things, the things that God has given you. Behold, verse 27. So the rest of the chapter here is about the judgment against Assyria. The name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and his burden uh, is heavy. His lips are Full of indignation, his tongue like a devouring fire, his breath is like an overflowing stream which reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of futility and there shall be as a a bridle in the jaws of the people causing them to err. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy festival is kept. Now, this is talking about when the Assyrians will be defeated. A A song will be put in the, in the mouths of the, of the Israelites. And gladness of heart as when one goes with a flute to come into the mountain of the, of the Lord, to the mighty one of Israel, to the Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard. Greg, you want to get up and sing that? Where's the... Now, why are you getting red, Greg? The Lord will cause his glorious voice to be heard. I'll stop there. Greg does it so good, though. And he shall have a song in the night. Come to the mountain. I really will stop. And show the descent of his arm with the indignation of his anger and the flame of a devouring fire with scattering tempests and hailstone. For though the voice of the Lord, for through the voice of the Lord, Assyria will be beaten down. I like that. It's just the, the word of the Lord. The wor- world was created, but by the word of the Lord, judgment will come. And in every place where the staff of punishment passes, which the Lord lays on him, it will be with tambourines and harps and the battles of brandishing. He will fight with it for tofet. 
was established of old. Now, Tophet, this is a really interesting study here. Tophet was a, a place, a geographical place outside of Jerusalem located in what was called the Valley of Hinnom. It served as Jerusalem's garbage dump where there was just always sort of a fire there. The Hebrew word for hell, Gehenna, comes from the word for the Valley of Hinnom. So there's just really, literally, there's a reference to hell here in verse 33. Not many references to, to, to hell as, we under, as, the, as there's later revelation in the, in the New Testament. Um, there's this concept of Sheol, but here you have this Tophet, which was part of the valley of him, this reference to hell. It says, yes, for the king it is prepared. Now, may that be, uh, it's, you know, is that a reference to the king of Assyria? Probably may also be a reference as we read in Revelation. Hell was made and prepared for Satan and his demons. He has made it deep and large, its pyre is fire with much wood. The breath of the Lord, like the stream of brimstone, kindles it. So we will stop there. But praise the Lord. Again, verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. What a great picture that even in times of backsliding and rebellion, you know, he waits. Why does he wait? So he can be gracious to you. So we, uh, we end the service.